Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Um, I think that we could probably all agree that Christians are both one of the main reasons why people pursue Jesus, and at the same time, one of the primary reasons why people want nothing to do with the church. It's kind of this paradoxical kind of statement. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that like Jesus, but they don't like the church, and it's not so much that they don't like the church, that they don't like Christians. And uh, I know Jesus today, I am a follower of Jesus today, because other Christians led me to the Lord. But I also remember a time where I despised God, I despised the church, I hated Christianity because of Christians and their conduct and their action. And so I think we all know that Jesus, um, I think we all know that uh, Christians uh, are called to represent Jesus well. And... I think in that same thought process, in that same vein of thinking, uh, we know Christians who represent Jesus well. And then at the other side of that coin, we know people who identify as Christians. Maybe they're just nominal in their faith, but they kind of carry the Christian moniker that don't represent Jesus well at all, um, if they even have any kind of semblance of who Jesus is. And so at the end of the day, it poses us with this question of what does it mean to live like a Christ follower? What does it actually look like to be a Christian? What should our conduct look like? How should we interact with one another? These are all questions that we're going to try to answer from the text of 1 Corinthians. And it's, uh, last week we introduced a new teaching series, and I, I want to be careful with uh, like putting a time limit on it. Adam and I mapped out kind of the first three chapters of the book, and we've got a number of weeks and a number of topics to cover just from the first three chapters of the book of First Corinthians. Um, but the book of First Corinthians is actually a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, a church that he planted in the city of Corinth. Um, but its contents, in fact, I think you could even argue maybe the overall theme of the letter um, addresses this question of what does it mean to live like a Christian? And it gives practical instruction for how we as followers of Jesus ought to live. And I, I think that's a, a fascinating thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting document, this letter to the Corinthian church that I'm excited for us to dig into. I'm excited for us to unpack. Uh, you see, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus on his third missionary journey that dates at about AD 55. And I'm, I'm sharing this because I think it's uh, helpful to kind of keep a, a time frame in perspective when we're talking about the Corinthian church. And so that means this was written 20 to maybe 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, it makes it the earliest, one of the earliest, if not the earliest letter um, written in the New Testament. And so I want us to think of um, the Corinthian church as kind of the, the 
the ground zero for uh, church history in terms of the Gentiles coming to know Jesus. It's one of the first churches that was planted. It's one of the first letters um, that Paul writes. And uh, there's obviously, when anything starts, when anything's new, there's a lot of messy things that take place. And the book of 1 Corinthians deals with bringing correction to these issues that the Corinthian church is facing. And so uh, last week we alluded to some of these issues that the church in Corinth was experiencing. It was very much a church that was being influenced by the culture of the community that it was in. It's easy on this side of the New Testament to look at the things that were taking place in the church in Corinth and somehow think we are better than them. <laughs> I think it's easy for us to kind of look at what the, what the issues the Corinthian church was dealing with and have a, well, we wouldn't make those same kind of mistakes mentality, a, a better than that, a holier than thou mentality. But I, I want to remind you, we have the New Testament. <laughs> like we have these letters, we have this, this correspondence between Paul. We have the benefit of not being first generation Christians. Could you imagine a church made up of entirely, entirely new believers to Jesus? It would be, it would be crazy. It would be, in, it would be very hard to wrap our minds around. We are privileged to have church history. I want you to understand that. We are privileged to have the New Testament. We are privileged to be following Jesus with this plethora of resources. We're privileged to be following Jesus with church grandmas and church fathers that have been praying and have been rooted and well-established in the faith for decades, where Jesus has only been resurrected for maybe 20 years at the writing of 1 Corinthians. And it's a church that is being planted in a, in a culture that is not predominantly Jewish, it's predominantly Greek and Roman. And so this is, a, this is a brand new environment for the Christian faith to be kind of spurring into. And there's not a lot of history there. And so when we read about the issues and we read about the, the problems that were happening within the Corinthian church, I think it's a little bit easier for us to understand why those, why those things were happening. It's easy for us to kind of sit back and say, you know what? Of course you shouldn't be eating food sacrificed to idols, or you probably shouldn't be partaking in uh, sexual immorality or these things that were like, duh, that's like Christianity 101. But this was really groundbreaking, a groundbreaking moment for the church at large that Paul is bringing, um, that is, Paul, Paul's kind of addressing these issues um, for the first time because the church is brand new. And he doesn't make excuses for him. He doesn't say just because you're new to this that you get like a, a, a free pass. Um, he actually expects more from them. But I just think that that's something that is very interesting. Um, because I think about this. We have the New Testament. We have millennia now of church history. We have forefathers. We have doctrines. We have... We have a plethora of resources. Um, we have the Holy Spirit. We have these things that should um, that we should be considered privileged 
in our knowledge. We should be, we, I say this because I examine the behavior of the church of Corinth and I look at the church of America today and it's wildly similar, but we don't have the excuse that we didn't know. We don't have the excuse that there weren't forefathers. We don't have the excuse that there isn't sound doctrine or that this is all new to us. We are still a church that is overrun by the culture. When I say that, I'm talking about a collective church. And I, I just I want to be cautious as we go forward that we don't look down at the Corinthian church and be like, man, how did you guys miss it so bad? without being introspective to the state of the church at large um, for us today. Does that make sense? And so I wrote this, that we have things and issues and problems that the Corinthian church did, but we have it in mass today on a global scale within the church, running rampant. People are still divided Churches are uh, still living and operating in conflict. Sexual immorality is not just tolerated, but it's celebrated. It's preached from pulpits today. And rather than scripture guiding the church on morality, the culture defines what's right and wrong for a lot of churches today. It's become a popularity contest where people are swayed and moved by impressive Christianity. And I think the problems that we encounter uh, in the church of Corinth, as we're reading, are very much still prevalent in the church today. We just don't have the excuse that we didn't know any better and that no one told us so. Does that make sense? I hope you can understand where I'm coming from. Could you imagine what kind of letter Paul would write to the American church today? I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want to go too far down that road, but I can guarantee you we would be receiving a letter. <laughs> and it probably wouldn't be like, good job, guys. I think I've seen a meme floating around the internet, and it's like, uh, you know, dear church in America, I, Paul the Apostle, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, I don't really know where to begin with you guys. <laughs> Because I think we, we can be the first to admit that there are issues with the church at large. There are problems, and people see them. And there's a reason why people aren't just flocking to join the church, is because we have received a bad rap. Um, there is not necessarily the most positive, um, you know, oh, what's the word? I'm, words are just hard for me to track down this morning. The church isn't represented in the most positive light. Um, and some of that uh, reputation is deserved because we have had our fair share of scandals and things that are wrong. Um, but it's not Jesus. Jesus has never been scandalous in terms of uh, his uh, morality. You guys get what I'm saying. Jesus, help me. We need you today. <laughs> I need your help with words, and you can do that. We give you glory. Amen. And so I thought it would be great if we started with a little bit of history before we jumped into our study of the, of the Corinthian letters here and uh, whatnot. So I'm going to give us a little bit of a history and a geography lesson. And when I say a little bit, I mean really just 
a little bit. I'm not even going to bust out maps or anything like that. There are some things that I just think are helpful for us in understanding the context of what was taking place in the Corinthian church. And a lot of that revolves around what was happening in Corinth, the history of Corinth, the geography of Corinth. And as we get to some specific issues that the letter deals with throughout the upcoming weeks and months, uh, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. So I'm just giving a very cursory glance as, as to kind of the state of Corinth, the city of Corinth, the culture of Corinth, that'll provide as a backdrop for us as we kind of read about some of the issues that the Corinthian church was facing. Um, so Corinth was actually located on a four-mile-wide isthmus, isthmus, wow, separating the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean Sea. And because of this, Corinth became this uh, really important transit point um, for trade between Europe and Asia. And in turn, this made Corinth a very wealthy city. And so if I was very well prepared, I would have a map that I would put up uh, of Greece on this screen right here. So if you guys all want to pretend that you remember what Greece looks like, it's up there right now. And uh, <laughs> uh, the isthmus was this, it's kind of the bottom part of the peninsula of Greece, and it comes off into the Aegean Sea, and it's uh, attached to the main part of Greece by this little four-mile stretch of land. That's its kind of widest point. And what the, what the Corinthians did, the Greeks did, was they built a trade route. And so instead of having to sail all the way around towards Malta and uh, to get to the other side of the sea um, that was very treacherous, they made it a point of trade. So where they would actually stop and they would unload their cargo and travel four miles across land and load it onto a different ship, and it saved a vast amount of time, a vast amount of resources. It was still incredibly difficult, but it really became, uh, it really helped enable Corinth to become this bustling city. And uh, with that, there were all kinds of things that come when wealth comes to a city, right? <laughs> As a city is uh, just kind of in, in life in general, sometimes when wealth starts appropriating, other problems come alongside with it. And so in addition to their wealth, uh, the Corinthians actually worshipped this goddess of love named Aphrodite. And it was the Greek goddess of love, of beauty, of pleasure and procreation. And so they built this temple to Aphrodite on the mountain that overlooks the city of Corinth. And uh, it was uh, this kind of massive temple. But what was unique about this temple was that it employed over a thousand prostitutes for the worship of Aphrodite. In fact, it's, it's fascinating. We won't get too, too deep into this. There's a, there's a museum there, though, in where ancient Corinth used to stand, um, which is a, a little bit away from where Corinth today would be found. Uh, but there's a whole museum there of all these ancient artifacts and, they, and all these kind of inscriptions and these, uh, these statues or these, uh, not statues, what am I trying to say? I guess they would be statues, pottery. Uh, kind of depict different genitalia that uh, has been infected with STDs <laughs> and all this kind of crazy stuff, but it was evidently a problem, and still modern archaeologists are kind of uncovering, and they're, they're studying Corinth as kind of the epicenter for where sexually transmitted disease ran rampant in the ancient world, which is 
just interesting, but I, I'm sharing this not to be um, just not to be kind of vulgar or intense this morning, but I want you to understand the nature of the culture and the lifestyle that was acceptable and normal in Corinth. And that's the, that's the same kind of culture that God chooses to plant his church. And that's where this that's where we see the church of Corinth being established. And so when we read about there being issues with sexual immorality within the church at Corinth, we understand that's an overflow and a reflection of the culture that this church is planted in. And it was also a political hub. And so not only was it uh, kind of had this religious center, and not only did we, not only was it interesting with Aphrodite, but there were all kinds of cults that kind of popped up, Roman cults, uh, because in... Oh man, I'm, I'm getting my, I'm jumping around and I'm not giving you the history in the chronological order so it doesn't make sense. In 146 BC, um, the ancient city of Corinth was destroyed. It was ransacked and it was left kind of desolate for nearly a hundred years. And Julius Caesar will later come onto the scene, recognize its strategic kind of point of influence and rebuild Corinth from the ground up. He rebuilds the temple. He rebuilds the city, and it becomes this economic hub once again. But not only is it like a center point of trade, they, re- they, they figure out a way to, not, uh, to move ships across the isthmus, this four miles. And it's a really kind of impressive way that they pull out these logs, and they, they make this... Um, it's not a canal. It's an above-ground canal if you will. Uh, They found a way to move and transport entire ships. And so it completely revolutionizes the city of Corinth. And this is the Corinth that Paul is writing to. It's a kind of a recently resurfaced economic hub um, that is still full of debauchery and full of kind of... uh, full of this worship of Aphrodite, but you mix into it all of these Roman cults that come in, and it was previously a Greek city that's now a Roman city, and you get all kinds of crazy stuff happening. So it's this cultural melting pot of people. It's this economic center of trade, and it is defined by its immorality. It had a reputation for being immoral all across the ancient world before it was ransacked and rebuilt, and it still did even to a greater degree once it became the Roman capital of Archaea. And so it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Uh, lots, to, lots to kind of unravel there. The last little bit of information that I'll give, and we'll touch on this stuff more as we come across different points, but there was something called the Isthmus Games that took place there in Corinth. They were the host of it. And it was essentially the, the equivalent of the Olympic Games. And so it was this massive um, international, um, I was going to say sports, but it's more of like an athletic competition. It took place every two, year, every two years, but instead of honor of Zeus, like the Olympic Games, it was in honor of Poseidon, the Greek god. Um, but it was still wildly known. And so when Paul is making reference to athleticism and he talks about crowns and victories and these things that we're going to look at in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's drawing upon this imagery that would have been very prevalent to the Corinthian church. And it's, it's just kind of some exciting, nerdy, fun stuff, but does create us a great picture of the culture and the time frame and the context in which 
Paul was writing. And so I say all this because the Corinthian church was planted in the midst of a culture overrun by the pursuit of wealth, of sex, of political advancement, and of fame, a culture that is not unlike our own. I want you to draw the parallels here because we're going to revisit Corinth's history. We're going to look at it in depth a little bit more as we go through this, but that's just a, a little bit of the backdrop of where we're of who we're writing to, who we're looking at in, uh, in the church in Corinth. And so if you guys remember last week, we jumped through kind of just Paul's introduction and uh, kind of the, the opening of this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. And it says this, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both of theirs and ours. And I, I read that and I mentioned and I hit very briefly how there was this introductory theme of unity that was being established by Paul even in the introduction. And so with that in our mind, we're going to jump into kind of the main, uh, the main text that we're going to be in this morning, which is 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, verses 9 through 13. And I'm going to read these very quickly. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified you for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And so we're going to pause there, and we're going to kind of just really dive into this idea of unity, this kind of major theme of the letter. In fact, the first three chapters, as you'll notice as we kind of walk through these portions of Scripture, we're going to come to a culmination in chapter 3 and chapter 4 where we see Paul is still talking about the unity of the church, and he's still addressing this issue of being unified. And so um, it's really fascinating. It's really cool. But what's happening here is we find out that there's division amongst the believers at the church in Corinth, that the body of Christ is being broken up into different parties, different factions. And we don't know a lot about the quarreling. We don't know a lot about what kind of initiated this conflict other than that they were dividing into different cliques. They were dividing into different, um, different parties and they were claiming different leaders. And uh, with, it, it would have been common for an introduction in the ancient world, especially in a city as prosperous um, and politically charged as the church of Corinth, that if you were to introduce yourself, you would say, I am so-and-so of so-and-so. And so I'd be like, I am Nate of, um, if there was a political candidate that I really loved. Um, man, that's, that's a hard one. <laughs> Oh, man. We used to make this joke uh, back in the day that we all wanted Alan Hood 
to run for president and that that was a guy that we could follow. And uh, so I'd be like, man, I am Nate Ward of Allen Hood. And he, <laughs> he's a Bible teacher from Kansas City. Anyway, uh, not politically um, running for office that I know of. Wouldn't surprise me, but uh, <laughs> not, not really relevant here. But that would have been something that would have been common. It would be common for a Trump supporter to say, hey, I am Nate Ward of, man, don't take these as sound bites, Elliot. Or I guess, I guess Aaron's in the back. Please, I'm using this for reference. Uh, I am Nate Ward of, of Donald Trump. Or you'd have somebody saying, you know what, I am Adam Perez of Joe Biden or these things. <laughs> I'm, I'm using this to make a point, guys. <laughs> it was something that it would have been common to identify yourself with your political affiliation. And so the fact that this was being driven into the church, the same kind of sentiment, the same kind of mentality, is breaking Paul's heart here. And he talks about, it's not just talking about when he's saying there's divisions among you, the language that's used there, it's more than just a schism, more than just breaking up into groups or different fractions. It's essentially talking about tearing, rending a part of the body of Christ. He's saying, stop tearing each other apart based upon these divisions, based upon something that is really pretty foolish and immature. And he goes on and we, we see kind of these different parties, these different cliques being established where one says, I am of Paul. You've got the Paul party, right? You've got these people in the church who, who they're declaring that, you know, we're following in the footsteps of the man who founded this church. He's the apostle Paul and we are the ones that are really right with God. And then you've got the, the people that are like, but Paul, man, he was kind of poor, he couldn't have been blessed by God. So you know what? We're of the Apollos party. Apollos was a, a gifted teacher. We learned from the book of Acts that was active in Corinth. Corinth. He, was, he was well-educated. He was articulate and he was used by God. He was operating in the, in the gifts of the spirit. And so they'd say, you know what? I'm of the Apollos party. And they're, they're saying, you know what? We're following in the footsteps of the man who is great in power and spiritual gifts. He's impressive. And man, he can preach our socks off. You know, we're the ones that are really right with God. And then you've got the others that are, I'm of Cephas. They're part of this kind of Peter party, right? Man, don't say that too fast. Peter party, Peter party, Peter party, Peter party. Um, <laughs> I like Cephas better. It's, it's easier to say. <laughs> But, you know, we've got this other group that are saying, you know what, we're following with Peter. You know what? Because Jesus told that guy he was the rock and he was going to build the church on that. So, man, we've got to follow Peter. He's the OG. He's the real deal. So we're going to identify with Peter. And then you've got the other people that are saying, you know what, well, we're not going to follow any man. We're not submitting to any other kind of authority. You know what? We're the Jesus party because we recognize that we're not carnal. We're spiritual and so uh, we're just going to follow Jesus. And, and Paul even rebukes these people because that, on the surface almost sounds good. That almost sounds right. Of course, we want to be followers of Jesus. I, wanna, I want that to be said, I am of Christ. But the issue with all of these is one of spiritual elitism. It's this better than somebody else's mentality. And it's not even so much that they were like, boasting about their leaders here that, you know, what Paul is so great or Apollos is so great or Peter is so great or even that Jesus is so great. It was this mentality of I'm so great because I chose to follow Paul 
Or I'm so great because I chose to follow Apollos. Apollos. Or I'm so great because I'm a follower of Peter. And actually, (laughs) it's just one of those things that is really incredible when we break it down. Because it's this issue of spiritual elitism that is breaking and dividing the church. It's quite contrary to what Paul would write to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 to think of others as better than yourself. And this language that we see throughout the New Testament of submitting to one another, of serving one another, and what we see at the kind of the onset of all of the issues with the church in Corinth, it was the mentality that somehow I don't need my brother or sister in Christ. And it may not start off that way, but they're saying, I'm more right than them, and so therefore I don't need them. And we see this breaking apart of the body of Christ that Paul recognizes very early on, and he says, this is not good, friends. We're going to back up to verse 9, because I want to kind of address this question of what makes a Christian a Christian? What, what brings us into the faith? And I think it's answered in verse 9 pretty plainly. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What makes us a Christian? It's being called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the single most unifying aspect of our faith. It's not where or how we grew up, what part of the country we resided in, what church or denomination we were a part of. It is the fact that we are called into the fellowship of the Son of God. That is what unites us. That's what brings us together. And I think this is, this is interesting, this word fellowship You know, most of us probably think of fellowship in light of like Lord of the Rings or something like that. But what we see here is this idea of fellowship with Jesus exists as friendship with Jesus. It's actually defined as this. If you look up the word fellowship, it's defined as camaraderie. It's defined as friendship. It's defined as a group of people meeting to pursue a shared interest. And so when we're invited into the fellowship of Jesus, we're, inviting, we're invited into the opportunity to share his interests, to, to be united with what he's passionate about, to be united with what he's doing. And so if we're going to have fellowship with Jesus, I believe it's a unifying thing for us across the family of God. So it brings us to verse 10. It says, now I plead with you, brethren. And I think this is interesting that Paul, he's not here just demanding. He doesn't show up. He's like, I am the apostle Paul because other places he just commands people to do something. But I think here, even in this language where he's pleading, he's begging, we get a a picture into the apostle's heart where he is grieved, where he is broken, that this division exists. And he says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see, that shared interest that we mentioned just a a moment ago in talking about the fellowship is the advancement of the kingdom of God. That that is our shared interest. That that, that when when we're talking about 
being unified. Um, When everyone has a different opinion on what the interest of Jesus is, and it's defined by culture rather than the scriptures and what the Holy Spirit has already spoken, we develop factions and we develop different divisions within the bodies of Christ, within the bodies of Christ because someone will feel like something is more important than the other. And when we get our eyes off of the fact that Jesus has called us to advance his kingdom, and we could break this down into all kinds of terminology, we get some people that feel like it's, their, it's, it's the church's responsibility to be completely embracing of the culture and everything, everything that it stands for. And then you have other people that feel like, you know what, for us to... For us to uh, fulfill the call of God, we've got to take a stand and take up arms against everything that is wrong and beat people down. And then you've got people that have this mentality that it's, it's our job to do a million different things. And we get into a place where the church looks like it looks like today because we're not unified in what God is doing. And I'm not, I want to be careful here. And I was going to make this statement at the end. Because God calls us to unity, but he doesn't call us to uniformity. He doesn't call us to be all the same. This isn't a message here that's saying, you know what, we should abandon all denominational lines. We should abandon church buildings and church fellowship. God created us, and I thank God that we have different outlets and different avenues of the church because it reaches different people. I liked how Spurgeon would talk about, he, he would literally thank God and say, I thank God for the different denominations because the gospel is too big of a task for any one church to fulfill. And I say that, we, but we have to be united in what we're here about, and that's about Jesus. And I, it breaks my heart to know that there are different movements that carry the Christian name that exists out there that are really just politically motivated and they're advancing an agenda or there's some kind of, there's, there's something ulterior. Oh, you guys get, oh man, words. To, yeah. Ulterior. I said ulterior, but it's, you guys got it. Um, but something that's different from the message of Jesus. And so um, I say that because we will never accomplish what God intends us to accomplish as a divided bride. And if everyone here has a different idea of what it is that Jesus is asking the church to do, of what he's expecting his bride to accomplish, it'll never happen by accident. It has to come from a united bride. And I say that because I see in scripture that God begins to move powerfully when the church is united, when it's operating in one accord, right? It was on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one accord, right? When the Holy Spirit came. In fact, in the book of Acts, it highlights at least 10 different times. It uses the same language that they were in one accord. And I'm going to read Acts 1.14. It says that all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And this was a description of the early church. I mean, as early of the church as you can possibly get, the book of Acts, the foundation of the church, Acts chapter two, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gathering together of the saints, where the church is really established. 
And we see this language consistently used throughout the book of Acts to describe the early church. And it says that they were in one accord. And to be in one accord communicates being one in both heart and mind. In fact, there's certain translations that we'll talk about. Instead of saying uh, being all together in one place or being together in one accord, they would say that they were operating with one heart and one mind. And it reminds me of what Paul would write to the Romans. In Romans 5 and 6, it says this, he prays this. He says, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. This kind of oneness of heart, this kind of unity, this kind of connectedness with the soul in the body of Christ is only possible through the Holy Spirit's enabling. This doesn't happen because we get together with people that are just like us, which I, I, can, I can grow cynical when I hear about like biker church and you get a bunch of bikers together because, you know, there's a bunch of people just like them in order to encounter Jesus. And I have a good friend who's a pastor of the Cowboy Church over in Durango. And, and sometimes it's hard for me to wrestle with a bunch of cowboys getting together just because, you know what, we're all on the same page and we all like the same stuff. So it's easy for us to get along. I love, I love with the family of God that I can get together with people that are not like me in any sense or any capacity and love Jesus together. Because there's something that connects us deeper than our interests or our, our kind of just uh, our passions or our hobbies. I, I, I share this all the time. I use this example all the time. My passions have changed since I've gotten to know Darwin because Darwin knows how to have fun. But when I met Darwin 12 years ago, we didn't have a single thing in common. I mean, we did, outside of Jesus. <laughs> And I'm thankful that you've rubbed off on me <laughs> and I've learned how to have fun. But the reality of it is, is that God calls us to be unified with one another beyond our hobbies or our passions. He calls us to be unified together in the Son of God. But that only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen just by us getting together with people that we like because how many of you guys know, there, there are people that I like. Adam and I have a lot of the same hobbies. Well, not hobbies, passions. We used to have more. We, we both like to play games. We like each other, but we could still get on each other's nerves. We still need the Holy Spirit to be there uh, to, to, to keep our relationship strong. It's the same way in the family of God. I want to read this out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Go on, if you read the entire context of Ephesians chapter 4, 
We see the equipping of the saints for ministry, and we see this idea that unity is the goal of the church. Unity is a mark of maturity for the bride. And I don't think Paul expects it just to happen organically, if you will. He expects it to happen through the gifting and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful um, that it's not something that we just have to white knuckle and we have to work our way through, but that he does give us the Holy Spirit to help us. Verse 13 uses this language, is Christ divided? The answer is no. And I would say this, that Jesus isn't schizophrenic. Sometimes I think that's the only way to answer the question of the different divisions within the church today is that, well, Jesus must have a personality disorder. Because if Christ takes up residence in you at salvation, we understand this. This is a doctrinal belief that I believe that Jesus, uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit resides within me. But if he's residing within me as a believer and as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, and he's doing the same thing with Adam, but we are, we're divided, something's wrong with that picture because Christ isn't divided. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you can't call Jesus schizophrenic here. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. That if Jesus has taken up residence in us, then we have to be united in passion and purpose because Jesus is not divided. Because if he is, if he has taken up residence in us, he's going to lead us together, not apart. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that we could talk about here. There's a lot of different things in the book of 1 Corinthians where we could talk about unity and whatnot. And I'm grateful to be in a community of believers here where I have not sensed that there's a, a bunch of different factions. There hasn't been any kind of uprising where people are running off in different directions and, and being divided in this house. But I do know collectively there are things that separate the church, even just in Pagosa, that we look at other people and, and I worry and I, I want to be cautious. I want to, I want to be careful that we never fall into the place of spiritual elitism. Because I think easily it could look like, well, I am of center point. I am of restoration. Well, I'm of open door church. I'm not carnal at all. I'm of Jesus. I go to home church. I'm going to be careful with that one. And it's this idea that, you know, we figured it out and we're better than one another and we don't need them. But the reality is, if we're going to see the move of God that Jesus has in store for our community, we need the church to be unified. That doesn't mean that we don't do things differently. We're, we believe things a little bit differently, and we're not, on the, not on the major stuff, but at the end of the day, we're focused on Jesus. And I'm grateful for the expression of the church in this community, and it's important that we're on the same page, if you will. If we're connected in believing that God is going to move in our community, but he's going to do it with us together.
not at, a, not at each other's throats, not with this mentality that somehow we figured it out or we've got the secret sauce on the market. We need his help to do that. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.